Welcome to the Sunday School class of Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we could have this time together to study God's Word. For our lessons, we are using the Nazarene Quarterly, and today's lesson comes from Sunday, August 30th. The title, Celebrating Where We Came From. Let's begin, though, with Paul's prayer for the Philippians from Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Are you a pessimist? Is Eeyore your favorite character from Winnie the Pooh? See how you relate to these quotes. This is from Robert Asprin. He writes, When things are at their blackest, I say to myself, Cheer up, things could be worse. And sure enough, they get worse. Or, from someone who's unknown, a quote, Exercise daily, eat wisely, die anyway. Well, you know, discouragement is a universal issue. It's something that we all face from time to time, when nothing seems to be working out. In today's lesson, the theme comes from Psalm 105, and the psalmist is pointing back to God's faithfulness. He's remembering how God established a covenant with Abraham and how he fulfilled that covenant by bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. In this psalm, we celebrate God's faithfulness, and when we celebrate His faithfulness in the past, we are encouraged and reminded to trust Him in the present and in the future. Our key verse comes from Psalm 105, verses 1 and 2. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim His name. Make known among the nations what He has done. Sing to Him. Sing praise to Him. Tell of all His wonderful acts. You know, celebration was a core part of what it meant for the Israelites to be the people of God. Uh, it was built into the Jewish calendar. There, there were four festivals. This would be almost 30 days of feasting per year. Also, every Sabbath was intended to be a celebration. And there was a, a unique celebration every 50 years called the Year of Jubilee. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year, but after seven sets of seven, on the 50th year, the Year of Jubilee was proclaimed. And during this year, any agricultural land that had been sold was automatically returned to the original owners. And anyone who, because of poverty, had sold themselves as servants, they were released from this servanthood. Debts were canceled. The land itself was given rest, and no crops were planted. Now, we can see why the poor people would celebrate uh, this year of Jubilee, you know, the one forced to become a slave. But why would other Israelites celebrate this? From an economic perspective, the year of Jubilee seems to make no sense. 
you're giving up all of the economic resources that have been so painstakingly built up. You're going back to square one. Think of all the money that we pay to tax and estate lawyers to make sure this doesn't happen. But everyone could celebrate the year of Jubilee because it meant that you didn't have to push and shove and scrape to make sure you got your share. The year of Jubilee said, It all belongs to God anyway, and He can be depended upon to provide everything you need. So when you observed the year of Jubilee, this meant you were affirming your trust that God Himself could be trusted and would take care of you. Now, our modern church doesn't usually do a good job of celebrating. Now, we may do a lot of fellowshipping, getting together, having fun with each other, enjoying each other's company, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that misses the point of biblical celebration. Biblical celebration is rejoicing in who God is. And this is the celebration that we are called to, to celebrate God Himself, to celebrate the fact that we are His people. Yogi Berra is famous for a saying of, it ain't over till it's over. And you know, we see a problem a lot of times in our modern church. So many of us start out strong, but then somehow we falter along the way. Something derails us. This may happen in middle age or even later in life. And so why do we find it difficult to finish strong? You know, in the Bible, we see examples of this. We were talking about King David several weeks ago. He started out so well, but the last 20 years of his life were a disaster. King Solomon, David's son, he also started out well. At the beginning of his reign, Scripture tells us he asked for and he received wisdom to rule God's people. But he ended up being one of Israel's worst kings. He was prosperous, he was powerful, but he brought Israel to spiritual ruin because he brought in the worship of all of these foreign gods. In fact, Solomon's rule is seen as so bad, after he dies, the northern kingdom of Israel revolts rather than to be under his son who has pledged to continue his ways. So from this, we can see that it's hard to finish strong. We see it in our contemporary society. Uh, I, was, I was going to Google uh, several examples, but there were so many of them, it was kind of discouraging. But when we look at Paul's testimony, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. How do we make this our testimony? And the psalmist tells us, we can look back, and see what God has done in the past. And this shores up our faith in Him for the future. The psalmist uses the story of the Exodus, God's deliverance of His people from slavery in Egypt, when God provided the law, brought them through the desert, and finally leads them into the promised land, makes them His own people, the people of the covenant. The psalmist uses all of this to make the point, God proved dependable then, God can be trusted today. 
The Exodus is seen by many as the redemptive event of the Old Testament. Just as the New Testament is focused around the redemptive act of Christ, His death, His resurrection, the Old Testament is built around the Exodus itself. The Exodus will be the account that shapes the Israelites. Uh, really, from that point on, it is the event that the prophets remind the people of time after time to remind them of who they are as the people of God. Now, the Exodus is important for several reasons. First of all, it was not just a physical deliverance, a deliverance from slavery. It wasn't just a physical inheritance of the promised land. It was a spiritual transformation. These were people who were taken from Egypt and were not told specifically, but many were most likely worshiping Egyptian gods. They did not really know the God of Abraham, but the Exodus transforms them spiritually. They are given the law. They are shown what it means to be righteous before God, what worship of the true God involves. And the Exodus is a time when God reveals Himself to the Israelites through His acts of deliverance, through the law that God brings to them. God reveals Himself in ways that He never has before. The Exodus was to be the seminal event in the history of the Jewish people, the event that shapes them from this point on, the event everything else refers back to. So it's their defining moment for knowing that they are God's people, that God's presence is with them. Time after time, the prophets point them back to the Exodus in order to push them to look ahead with confidence. The prophets want them to have the assurance God is faithful and God can be trusted. In Psalm 105 that we're looking at today, the psalmist uses the Exodus to demonstrate the faithfulness of God. So that's what we want to look at. How is God's faithfulness revealed through the Exodus? What did it mean for the Israelites to look back to the Exodus? And what does it mean for us today? The Exodus is the story of God reaffirming the covenant that He had made earlier with Abraham. He was establish, establishing this covenant anew with the Israelites, making them His people under the law. And today, God has made us His people under a covenant with us as well. We are part of the new covenant, the covenant established through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus told His disciples at the Last Supper, He spoke to them in Luke chapter 22, and it says, He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So, we need to keep in mind as we go through this lesson, we too are part of a covenant relationship with God, a covenant sealed by the body and the blood of Christ. In part one of our lesson, we see God's faithfulness uh, in Exodus. We see His faithfulness in how God establishes this covenant. In the characteristics of the covenant itself, 
Uh, first, the very fact that God established a covenant at all, that he entered into an agreement with man. We find God himself uh, taking the initiative, first with Abraham, then with Isaac, Jacob, and then finally the Israelites, and through Jesus to Jews and Gentiles alike. In uh, Psalm 105, verses 8 through 11, it tells us, He remembers His covenant forever, the promises He made for a thousand generations, the covenant He made with Abraham, the oath He swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. So we see this covenant was made on God's initiative. God made the first move. It's amazing that God would make any kind of covenant, enter into any agreement with us, especially when God serves to get nothing from this arrangement. But we see a key characteristic of God. He is a God who seeks to reveal Himself. He wants us to know Him, to have a relationship with Him. So what we see from this is a God who reaches out to us to make an agreement that's entirely for our benefit so that we have the privilege of entering a relationship with Him. And if this is the God that we are in relationship with, why would we ever doubt that we can trust Him? Now, we see this covenant was a very personal one. It was made on an individual level first to an actual person, Abraham, but even later, the covenant was with each individual Israelite. Each one had to agree to enter uh, this covenant. So a covenant is more than just a contract or an agreement. It involves entering into a personal relationship. And our new covenant is even more personal or more intimate. Under the law, the Israelites could not approach God. God's presence was in the tabernacle, later in the temple itself, but access to God was strictly controlled. Only the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, and that was only once a year. And it was after a very strict procedure to make sure he was absolutely pure. But when Jesus came, God had a human body. God could be approached. God could be touched without the person dropping dead. And then with the coming of the Holy Spirit, God was not just a person outside of us. God was actually living inside of us. We had become God's temple. And so we see this covenant relationship becoming more and more intimate. And we see the covenant was intended to be eternal, to be everlasting. It wasn't gotten rid of. It was upgraded. It was made better. But the covenant was there all along. So we can see characteristics of God's care for us. Our well-being is important to Him. He takes a personal interest in us. His care for us is eternal. So we can look at this covenant that God makes with us, and it gives us hope for the future. As Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
When we look at this amazing covenant that God enters into with us, this salvation provided through Christ, how can we doubt that He will continue to care to provide for us? In part two of the lesson, we can see God's faithfulness through the Exodus story, even in what we consider to be problems or setbacks. You remember the Israelites came to Egypt under Joseph's protection. They came to Egypt, a land of plenty, uh, because they were in the middle of a famine. And when they came, they began to prosper. But as they grow, as they become more numerous, the Egyptians become frightened of them. And the Egyptians end up enslaving them as a way of controlling them. And to us, this would seem to be a huge setback or problem. But Scripture makes it plain. The slavery itself was part of God's plan. Even in this, God was being faithful to the covenant. From Psalm 105, we read, Then Israel entered Egypt. Jacob resided as a foreigner in the land of Ham. And it talks about how God acted, whose hearts he, God, turned to hate his people, to conspire against his servants. So we, free, we see from this, the Egyptians turning against the Israelites. This was God acting. This was not a mistake. So what may have seemed like a mistake, this decision to enter Egypt, it was part of God's plan all along. When we realize that God does not make mistakes, we know we can count on His faithfulness. It's interesting, from Genesis chapter 15, God is speaking to Abraham, confirming His covenant. And this is hundreds of years before Moses and the Exodus. Genesis 15 tells us, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. So God tells Abraham this, well before it happens, the Israelites would be enslaved. And God uses this enslavement of His people to shape the Israelites for His own purposes. We don't know exactly why God wanted the children of Israel to be slaves. But we know there was a purpose, and there could have been several reasons. First of all, would the Israelites have been willing to leave Egypt if they had had easy, prosperous lives? Did God let them be enslaved to show He had something much better in store for them? When we find them traveling through the desert, they continually threaten to go back to Egypt even if it means returning to slavery. Think how easily they might have gone back if the slavery wasn't there. The Bible also tells us that they were in Egypt, they were as slaves, because they could not possess the land of Canaan immediately. In Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham that the children of Israel must wait because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. So we see God in His justice. He's not willing to remove the inhabitants from the land of Canaan just yet because He's giving them a chance to not have their iniquity reach its full course. He would not punish them before their time, not even to make room for His own chosen people. 
Now, we also know that when the Israelites first went to Egypt, they settled apart from the Egyptians. They settled in the land of Goshen. Uh, Exodus 1-7 tells us this, that they were fruitful, they increased abundantly, and then it says the land was filled with them. Now, rabbis interpreted this to mean that the Jews had begun to assimilate into the entire country of Egypt. They were not isolating themselves in Goshen, but they were living throughout the land, and they were beginning to imitate their Egyptian neighbors. Uh, For one thing, they probably stopped circumcising their boys. It's interesting, when we find Moses returning from uh, the desert, after God has spoken to him, he's going back to Egypt to free the people. And it says God met him along the way and was going to kill Moses. And evidently it was because Moses had not circumcised his sons. And so we can see that it took uh, this being enslaved in Egypt to make the people of Israel into the people that God wanted them to be, to bring them out from among uh, their presence in the Egyptian land. Uh, And in fact, God himself says he hardened Pharaoh's heart. He kept the, the Israelites as slaves in Egypt so that he could show his power. It says that he made a mockery of the Egyptians by performing these miraculous signs among them. So it's only after witnessing God's power, seeing God's power displayed, that the Israelites are ready to become the people of God, to commit themselves to the law and to the covenant. Uh, It's interesting, uh, Rabbi Shimon says, the sojourn of the Israelites in Egypt is part of God's plan to create a chosen people. However, the enslavement is as important as the salvation because the enslavement defines the relationship between God and the people of Israel. By freeing the Israelites from their taskmasters, God acquires rights over them. The Israelites stop being slaves in Egypt and instead become the slaves of God himself. Leviticus 25 verse 55 says, For it is to me the Israelites are servants. They are my servants, whom I freed from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so we can see that the covenant was possible because of the enslavement of the people in Egypt. So although this may have seemed like a mistake to them, God was still being faithful, even when they were being slaves. Uh, Scripture tells us that hardship and persecution, these things are good for us, that they are part of God's plan and purpose. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. You know, uh, Andrew Solomon has a quote where he says, if you banish the dragons, you banish the heroes. 
And, you know, a lot of times we don't want the dragons in our lives. We don't want the suffering. We don't want the persecution. But without the dragons, there's no opportunity to be a hero. You know, uh, one of the Beatitudes tells us, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we can choose to give the events in our lives, the bad events, the good events. We choose whether to give them significance or meaning or not. God has a purpose. We can either embrace that purpose or we can chafe at what God puts into our lives. Now, in part three of the lesson, we see God's faithfulness here uh, in the scope of his deliverance. You know, the Exodus was the ultimate display of God's power. Scripture tells us, as we said earlier, God made a mockery of, the, of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. This was a rout, an overwhelming victory. And we see God's power on display here in the fact that when it was time for the Israelites to leave, the Egyptians didn't just allow them to leave. It says they urged them to leave. And in fact, the Egyptians even paid them to leave. There's a scripture verse that, that uh, tells us God told the Israelites to ask of the Egyptians, to ask to borrow gold and silver and I items of clothing. And the Egyptians willingly gave these to the Israelite people so that they could get them out of the land. And so we see here, the, the Egyptians did not just allow them to leave. They practically throw them out because they are so afraid of them and of their God by this time. Uh, so we see this as an overwhelming victory. You know, we see God not only freeing the people from slavery, but bringing them into their own land. And not just any land, but a land that's already fully prepared and furnished for them. You know, this was what's called a turnkey property. A turnkey property is a house that is ready to move into. There's nothing else that needs to be done. You know, the appliances are there. Everything is ready. It doesn't even need a fresh coat of paint. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God tells them, Then when the Lord your God brings you to the land, He promised your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, a land with large, fine cities you did not build, houses filled with choice things you did not accumulate, hewn-out cisterns you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. And so God tells them, I'm bringing you into this land, and you're not going to have to be pioneers. You're not going to have to build from scratch. Everything is already there and it's prepared for you. It's move-in ready. You just move in and take over. And so God has promised us to work in ways in our lives that we can't even imagine. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power. And then Ephesians 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so we can see God's faithfulness proven to us by how He has worked in our lives. 
And every one of us can point back to amazing ways in which God has delivered in the past. And so when we review what God has done in the past, we can be assured that God has great things in store for us in the future. Now, we can also see God's faithfulness at work in the fact that His purpose is not just the material, the physical deliverance of His people. His concern is for their spiritual well-being as well. His purpose was to deliver them from slavery, but it was also to make them His own special people, to bring them into a covenant relationship made possible through the law. And the law was actually a far greater blessing than the physical deliverance itself. Psalm 105 tells us, He brought out His people. He gave them the lands of the nations. But it goes on to say that they might keep His precepts and observe His laws. God is a holy God. To be in relationship with Him required the Israelites to be a holy people. They needed the law to show them how to live. They needed the law to make fellowship with God possible. And so this really was the ultimate purpose of the Exodus, of God making them His people, so that they could be in fellowship with Him. The law was given to safeguard the people. It was given for their benefit. And usually, you know, we look at the word Torah, and we translate this as law. But actually, it should be more of instruction or teaching. So the idea of the law really gives us kind of the wrong impression. It's, it's more instruction, instruction for our benefit to help us to live. You know, you can think about the difference between different types of warning signs. You have some warning signs like keep off the grass. Now, this is a warning that's clearly, it's not really for our benefit. It's to benefit whoever put up the sign. And a lot of times, this is how we think of God's law for us. But you also have warning signs such as stay out, high voltage. This is clearly for our benefit. If we don't listen, we may well end up dead. So God's laws are always for our benefit. Deuteronomy 6.18 says, Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you. The point of the covenant was to bring the people into relationship with God. The law made it possible to have a holy God living among them. And God's presence among them, this was always seen as one of the great blessings of the Israelite people. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is talking to God, and it says, Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? So the Israelites knew it was God's presence among them that made them unique. You know, they, they were unique among the peoples of the earth because God Himself made His dwelling there. His actual physical presence in the tabernacle and then in the temple. So the psalmist could point back to the Exodus story to say, God's presence came and dwelt among you. 
So you don't need to be discouraged. You can hope and trust for the future because God is with you. Now, the presence of God among us, it reassures us. It combats our, uh, our feelings of, of hopelessness or despair or discouragement. But it can be easy for us to lose this awareness of God's presence. It can be easy for us to become oblivious to God. Uh, and this makes us particularly vulnerable to discouragement. Our task is to practice the presence of God, to develop habits for discerning God's presence. You know, the world around us tends to dull us, to desensitize us. It takes an effort on our part to remain aware of God. And Scripture tells us we have to continually make ourselves conscious of God's presence. Psalm 105 verse 4 says, Look to the Lord and His strength. Seek His face always. And then Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. In the New Testament, Paul in Galatian writes of keeping in step with the Spirit. And so it takes an effort on our part to maintain this appreciation, this recognition of God's presence. And our usual practice of, of daily devotions, this is not enough. Uh, I, I like this quote from Ken Boa. And listen to what he says. He writes, Christians are often taught that our main line of defense is a daily quiet time. If we're disciplined enough to practice this, we usually complete it before leaving our homes in the morning. We head out into the rest of our day having compartmentalized our God life, leaving our Bible and our relationship with Jesus on our bedside table. And so we can see we need to take it beyond the level of just daily devotions. So how do I take an awareness of God with me into my day? Uh, there's a spiritual classic called Practicing the Presence of God. And it was written about the experience of a man called Brother Lawrence. He was known for recognizing God's presence in every part of his daily routine, in every one of the small tasks that he was responsible for each day. His goal was to live as if there were no one else in the world except himself and God. It was to invite God into everything he did, to enjoy the presence of God at all times. When he began his work, he would ask God to grant him the grace to continue in God's presence, to receive all of his works and possess all of his affections. And as he continued in his work, he kept up this familiar conversation with God, offering God all of his actions. He writes that there is no art or science about this practice of going to God. It only requires a heart that's resolutely determined to apply itself to nothing but God. Now, he realized he could only do this through God's power, only if God enabled him. And when he would finish his work, he says he would examine himself on how well he had done. And if he had done well, he would thank God. And if he had not done as well as he hoped, 
he would ask pardon of God. But then he writes, without being discouraged, he would set his mind right again and continue this exercise of being in the presence of God. You know, everything in our lives matters. Richard Foster writes, the real issues are found in the tiny, insignificant corners of life. Now, Brother Lawrence had committed himself to doing little things for the love of God. When we practice the presence of God, we pick an ordinary task, and as we do it each day, we seek to do it to God's honor and to God's glory. And so I would encourage you, as you go about your daily life, you know, ask yourself, am I doing this really in the presence of God? Is something keeping me from feeling God's presence as I do this? So, as we look back at the Exodus story, we see God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness revealed, and we see God's character revealed. So, we can see from the Exodus what God has done, but we see God for who He is. Now, we praise Him. We proclaim His name. We tell what God has done, not for God's good, but it's for our good. It's to remind us of just exactly who our God is. Our key verse said, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim His name, make known among the nations what He has done. Sing to Him, sing praise to Him, tell of all His wonderful acts. So, the story of the Exodus was something that was to be relived and retold every year. Now, this was to be an ongoing part of their national culture. They were to stop once a year and remember what God had done. In fact, God tells Moses, your calendar is actually to begin with this month. And so, the Passover was to be the beginning of their year. And from that time on, they were to commemorate the Passover uh, in the first month for seven days, from the 14th day until the 21st day. They were to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remind them of what God had done. And when we tell ourselves what God has done, we remind ourselves, we remind the next generation who God is. It's interesting that research shows when we pass down family values through stories, for adults, it enhances their sense of well-being, but it has a huge effect on the children involved. The more children know about their family history, the less anxiety, the less depression, the higher self-esteem that they exhibit. And so we can see that telling these stories is important, and it's important for us as well to go back and to tell the stories of God, to tell how God has worked in the past, because that makes us confident that God is going to continue to work in the future. When we know the stories of how God has worked, we understand our identity as children of God and of what that means to have God as our Father. So I would encourage you this week, think back to what God has done in your life. Think back to your own exodus when God brought you out of whatever had enslaved you. And then be confident that this same God is going to take you into the future.
Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture that we've studied. We thank you for the character of you that is revealed here and for what we've learned about you, for your faithfulness, for your strength and your power, for the confidence that we can have in you. And we ask that you would help us as we move throughout this next week and as we go on throughout our lives, Lord, that we will look back to the past and be uh, confident of the future in you, in your name. Amen. Thank you.